Hi, welcome to Chatting to a Friend. I'm Katie Friend and in this podcast I'm chatting to incredible women about their life experiences and adventures as well as their thoughts on friendship, community, self-care, setting boundaries and how they keep healthy, happy and sane. Laura Penhall, my guest today, is a record-breaking ocean rower. She's a physiotherapist and a performance manager for high-performing athletes. She was the team leader of the Coxless crew, setting two world records in 2016 as they rode unsupported across the Pacific for 9,000 kilometers from California to Cairns. It took four years to prepare for the challenge and nine months to complete it. She's the founder of Adaptive Performance and in 2017 provided performance management support to Mark Beaumont as he circumnavigated the world on his bike in less than 80 days. Such an incredible chat as we cover things like taking on one of the world's toughest ocean challenges, how useful it is to understand your own body and how self-awareness is absolutely key to good teamwork and leadership. And obviously what she learned from nine months at sea in an eight meter boat. We talk about sports science in the in the women's realm and how to manage good mental and physical well-being to help with stress, overwhelm and breakdowns. And of course, we talk about Mark Beaumont's incredible achievement of cycling around the world in that time and how she managed not only him, but her own well-being. A very quick congratulations to Laura, who since we recorded this podcast, got engaged to the lovely Matt. So very exciting news there. Also, I'd like to thank L.R. Anderton for her lovely review this week. Very much appreciated. Thank you. Hi, Laura. How are you today? I'm very good. Thanks. How are you? Excellent. Thank you. Um, So very exciting uh, career and endurance events and as an athlete and as a support crew I'm, I just want to touch briefly on what I said in my intro uh, two world records first team to row the Pacific first female team to row the Pacific do you know how many miles you rode in the end well we we say that it's 9,000 miles but um technically we we did a few a few circles and a few backward <laughs> backward trends so I think it was a it was maybe a couple more than that but yeah about 9,000 miles is a nice round number Extraordinary. And 9,000 miles in nine months. What drove you to do it? I know you had personal reasons for the charity you chose. Tell me what drove you and because it became almost as much of a marathon to get it organized as it was to do it. Yeah, in itself, like it it was four years just to get to the start line. And and I thought it was only going to be a year initially. And um, either we didn't have the money, we didn't have the sponsorship, didn't have the team dynamic quite right. So each year got postponed for different reasons, but that kind of kept kept the momentum. But for me, it's always around kind of what was what was my why, what was what was the purpose for for doing it, and that's what kept me driving forward. So so it was it wasn't just about kind of doing an expedition. I think a lot of people always ask me when I when I do talks about oh what's the next thing what's you know what's you know what expedition journey are you on and and for me it wasn't about that it was more about kind of how could I connect with my athletes I worked with so as a as a physio by trade over years I've kind of worked with and seen people go through significant trauma in their lives and and basically been thrown a significant curveball and there's always a split there's always those people that wake up from that significant adversity and have a real desire to to want to achieve and make the most out of their life and then there's those others that unfortunately it's been a real curveball that's that's kind of made them want to give up um and as i've kind of gone through my career if i've if i've worked with sort of a marathon runner or a triathlete i've kind of wanted to do the sport myself not at any high level but to give me an insight into kind of their world, so to speak. Um, so I had more rapport, had more understanding of what it was that they're putting themselves through. And when I started working with Paralympic athletes, you know, it was something that I could never understand or sort of have familiarity with. I, you know, I was fortunate to have a to have a healthy upbringing um, and to be healthy myself and have not had to overcome any significant injuries or illnesses that have left me in, in that sort of... Um, that challenge state. And so when I'm surrounded by Paralympic athletes that have either been in car accidents and left them with a, a spinal cord injury, um, or they've, they've 
you know were were fighting at war and they've they've lost a lost a limb or two limbs that they but they've got so much energy and drive to go on and want to achieve it, it sort of made me want to connect or ask the question of well what is it that we draw on when we're when we're faced with wanting to give up and and why do we have to wait for adversity to come to us um, before we realize what our abilities are and so when I was around the Paralympic athletes, it just, it always made me question more. Am I, am I really testing and challenging myself in the right way? Like I, I might do triathlons and whatnot, but it wasn't really pushing, pushing my mental buttons to sort of ask me, ask me those questions of what I draw on when you want to give up and, and sort of draw on, on the, the what if question. So that's what I was looking for was a big expedition that was going to take me completely out of my comfort zone that was going to take me to a place of complete unknown um, that I couldn't predict and I wanted to know what it was that I was going to draw on in those spaces so that I could get closer and more familiar with the athletes that I was working with at the time um, and then I found out about ocean rowing and and that was exactly totally ticked all the boxes for me it was I'd never rowed before I'd never been long sort of out at sea sort of sailing background wasn't my thing um I had to put a team together I had to sort of get the project together um and on an individual front you know I had to put weight on so (laughs) I was used to being marathon weight stuff so 58 kilos and I had to go up to 30 percent body fat and stick on 15 kilos in in mass so I was I was having to eat whole chickens at lunchtime. It was all sorts of stuff. It was completely out I of my comfort zone. I hear there were profiteroles in the mix. There was just loads. sounds like my dream. Oh no, exactly. <laughs> I had profiteroles. I remember one time I went down to Cardiff to see a group of athletes, and um, I was on my drive back, and I mean, I would never do this ever, but I was like, right, I need to put I need to put some serious calories in, and I hadn't accounted for my calorie sort of intake that day. <laughs> I stopped off at services. And I got, I got, a, you know, one of those whole trays of, what are they called? Not Dunkin' Donuts, but that sort of thing. Uh-huh. But a whole tray of donuts. It was like 12 Krispy donuts. Creams. Krispy Kremes. Exactly. Those. <laughs> I've, I've I mean, absolutely no idea what you're talking about. I'd never, yeah, no, exactly. Never. never. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like absolutely chuffed with myself. Like I've never touched these things, but oh my God, these are so good because they're just pure sugar. Oh, so I yummy. then drove back from Cardiff, um, stuffing my face with a tray of donuts <laughs> next to me. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> nice in a way, not so much in another way. And so yeah. you did it give you the answers? Because that's I mean, it's that's an incredible leap for your professional development to take on something that pushed you to the most extreme of your limits. And so did it give you the answers to fill those spaces that you were looking for? Yeah, no, it's a great, it is a great question. And on some, a lot of levels, yes, it gave, I mean, it gave me so much more than what I ever anticipated or could envisage, envisage, to be honest. Um, But fundamentally, you know, what do we, what do we draw on when we're faced with wanting to give up? I think the biggest thing was that actually, you know, we were there by choice. So whenever things were getting difficult, it it was kind of, for me, I was like, well, look, this is going to be over with whether it's six months or it's going to be nine months, like it's still going to be over and I'm still going to go back to sort of um, a normal life. Whereas actually when you're thrown a curveball that's not predicted and is life changing, then that's it. That's a completely different mental state that you've got to draw on. So in that sense, no, obviously it didn't, it didn't give me that, but the things it did give me was huge amount of in-depth insight into kind of self-awareness and development and, and kind of, you know, highlighting those real factors of what's important, um, as well as on a physical side of things of really sort of connecting and understanding how far we can push ourselves, um, and keep going and, and sort of the mental influence that we have that draws limits on us versus actually our physical limitation. Yeah, because I, th- I think I read something that you said that you're, and, and I've heard this before, I interviewed Karen Dark, uh, the Olympic paracyclist uh, just recently. And a lot of what you're saying tallies very much with what she's saying as w- what she said, but about you'd said your mind limits you before your body does, long before your body does. Mm. And so is that something you learned yeah, very much so. I think um, it's kind of, it's it's innate in us. It's our protective mechanism, to be perfectly honest. You know, our our body on mm. a physiological front will 
start to raise some signals, so to speak, and then that gets picked up by the brain and then the brain's outward response is to say, is to change our mood, is to, you know, influence our thinking patterns to sort of start sowing the seeds of doubt and sowing the seeds of actually is, you know, should you continue? Should you think about stopping that type of stuff? But often, mm-hmm. you know, if you can recognize the fact that that's being driven by our physiology, then it's kind of then from a, I suppose, coming from a science background, I then, as I'm doing something, I start to unpick, okay, well, what what could be the changes that are going on inside that I could maybe influence. So a classic example of what I mean by that Mm. is for anybody that cycles or runs, like, you know, we can, our mood will change and you can see it in kids. So even if you don't, if you don't do any sort of big endurance stuff, then you can see it in kids when, you know, blood sugars drop off, when we get sort of that tired, hungry sort of stage, our mood changes, we get grumpy, we get sort of, uh, yeah, a bit more despondent in ourselves. And, but have some food and suddenly we're pretty perked up um a few a few moments later so all same with you know the impact of hydration as as well like we could be dehydrated and feel like the world's ending but actually you know Mm. just have a glass of water and suddenly we can be perked up so I think kind of recognizing it going through it knowing the science behind things but then doing it myself putting myself on the other side of the table was such an eye-opener um and a real learning curve and I love that because it just gives me more the feel I think because in essence when I'm when I'm working with athletes or patients you know anybody we it's all about kind of you, you know I can put my hands on as a physio and feel certain things but fundamentally it's about how it feels to you as the individual and that's my biggest driver is constantly trying to build that rapport and build the understanding in the individual of themselves like that body literacy is Mm -hmm. so powerful um Mm. because in essence you you know when you know that you can treat yourself you can make sort of effective decisions um yeah which just gets the best out of yourself really it's interesting you should mention that with regards to kids because uh, i have two kids and i know that one cannot cope when the blood sugars go down and the other cannot cope with tiredness And it's my sort of go-to as a mum, but it's also helped me learn myself. Like you say, you sort of start to think, oh, yeah, life seems a bit blue at the moment. Mm. What is it? Have I slept? Have I had enough water? Have I, am I eating crap or am I, you know, actually properly nourishing myself? And it's such a, as you say, I've never heard that expression, body literacy, but that's a really interesting concept. And it's something that it's, it's not just as you say not just for athletes or endurance athletes but for anyone and I think it would be so important I think so many of my guests have talked about girls and adolescents carrying on in sport when at that really difficult time in their lives I think to know that from a young age must be so important yeah very much so I I totally agree there's there's a big thing at, at now that there's there's a there's a great drive with we you touched on it then about the female mm. or you know with with girls in particular that um the female science space is is kind of exploding at the minute there's some brilliant people to to follow the journeys of that we're trying to understand more and more about the female journey so to speak because even as a, on a basic this is going a bit broad now i suppose slightly off topic but the um you know, our hormonal profile is completely different to a male. And and because of that, general science has always preferred to assess the males because they're a bit more consistent in what influences there are. So when we, even from a point of view of medications, how, how it's metabolized, how it's utilized in our system, people, science tends to test males mm. because they're a bit more consistent. Whereas now, fine, not finally, because it has happened in in episodes, but it's mm. becoming much more vocal right now about the female athlete health or the mm. female health in general, and looking at that through all the stages. So for kids, when they go through then into puberty, into then kind of when we go into pre-pregnancy and then post-pregnancy, mm. then pre-menopausal, post-menopausal. So there's all these different stages in our life, which will be different and impact us differently due to our hormonal profile let alone all the other factors you know we're talking about 
before. And that also indicates as kids when they go into um, becoming that sort of going through puberty, that that change and, and that's all happening on a physiological level. And it's suddenly you see that in the outgoing response to their behavior suddenly mm. shifts, you know, that classic teenage years that, <laughs> that I'm sure you know well about. But um, yeah, th- those phases are are really influential um and we're just trying to understand more and more about it and there's some there's some great people like dr emma ross is is somebody really to to follow her journey she's she did stuff with the english institute of sport and set up the smart her project which was about Mm. trying just to do we understand the the female athlete enough and interestingly enough at the elite level of sport where we're always trying to make small percentage gains in performance suddenly there's this whole chasm that's opened up that actually training and methodology and you know considerations for the female athlete is all based around the male athlete so therefore it's not it's not adjusted according to whether you're a male or a female no i i fascinating because i was listening to your podcast which we will come on to chat about in a minute but i was listening to your episode with um dr emma ross it was absolutely fascinating i'm also reading roar by stacy sims ah, dr. Yes, stacy yeah. sims because yeah. far from being an elite athlete i am someone who likes to train who likes to do sort of endurance events and all the time I've done that, I have simply followed the same training routine as my husband mm. to a lesser extent because we have different goals. But mm. and I've always really struggled, really struggled with the a lot of it. And I've never quite understood why I think a lot of it is not being naturally sporty, perhaps the wrong expression, but not being a lifelong sports person. But it, the more I read about it, the more I understand that is because I'm simply a woman <laughs> I'm not I'm not a man and it doesn't necessarily apply to me the things that he does or that I could do differently to to work with my cycle and I'm now perimenopausal as well I'm really fascinated I love that because you rode in an all-female team did you were there things that you used both in the training physiologically psychologically that were female based or, or and or did any results or things that came out of your enormous effort mm. go on to to help with either your own studies or other people's? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And currently, to be honest, at the minute, these couple of months, I'm, I'm finally getting around to writing up that research that we collected. So we mm. we looked at, during our row, we collected um, saliva sampling to look at hormonal profiles such as mm. more kind of... It, the I was looking at psychological and physical indices. So, as in cortisol is is quite usually it is quite linked to psychological impact, as well as our day to day circadian rhythm, sort of our twenty four hour body clock. Um, but then we also looked at testosterone and and a couple of other bits, which which was more immunity profile um, mm. and what that did during during the road during extreme expedition sleep deprivation and, and things so and it did it did show sort of the fact of actually how our body goes into a real protective mechanism um when we're highly stressed state so the start of even just before getting onto the expedition the start line like when mm. actually everything's go 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 we've got to get this perfect we've got to go plus you've got family around and you mm. you're concerned it's emotional all of those things um that our body goes into real high peaked stress situation and it goes really protective. But then as soon as we got into a start to get into rhythm, you see how that completely drops off. Mm. And then, then you start to see actually over time how that becomes, then it, it goes too low that it makes us exposed to risk of immunity issues and stuff. Mm. Um, which, which, yeah, but what we didn't, I suppose what we didn't, do at that time which is now what we're looking at doing is we didn't necessarily pick out or we didn't have the ability to look at female specific hormones such as Mm. our estrogen progesterone type cycles but Mm. what we did do from a um certainly what we had to consider you know we we're out in an ocean rowing boat um it's a small environment it's a 29 foot sort of small boat for four four women so control of our menstrual cycles was quite key um in that respect so we then in our planning you know had to look into well how how best can we manage this in that environment and stuff and 
you know, if we were to stop it for a period of time, what's the impact of that? I was 29, 30 when I started doing the row. So um, I also was like, well, heck, you know, is that going to have a longer term impact on fertility, for instance, not that Mm -hmm. I had anything sort of short term. So all of those things were potentially considerations that we had that were different to what the guys would have, you know, uh, an all male boat would be having to consider or think about um, for sure. And then, but with regards to our training, like now, you know, female team that I'm supporting, yes, there's a difference in how we're sort of starting to consider their individuality. Um, Mm -hmm. So female to female and and as a female versus a male group. Um, And what that means is there's certain stuff that kind of Emma and other scientists have talked about roughly that they still don't know exact detail behind it but there is some evidence to sort of show that potentially when certain hormones are peaking that you might bias doing longer endurance training so it might be at the front end of your month but then you do higher intensity training towards the back end of the month of your monthly cycle but that's still quite arbitrary at the minute but there's some stuff that's been shown and so we're trying to collect some research uh in the extreme environment to see if yeah if we can map that a little bit closer to sort of actually see what's going on which i think will be interesting to see what comes out from that yeah oh it's absolutely fascinating i did wonder actually because you know obviously you had to put a nine months worth of rowing into uh, an hour and a half long film which by the way is one of the best adventure films or I don't know if I should title it such but Losing Sight of Shore I just watched it again last night because it's so awesome I watched it years and years ago but it really is just so incredible Um, but obviously there were lots of things you can't put in there and Mm. clearly might be a bit odd anyway to be talking about that sort of thing I don't know but it did I did wonder about you know periods and how you manage that and all that sort of thing because obviously everyone knows well Anyone who's like me, who's a bit obsessed, I'm a bit of a dot watcher when it comes to the Atlantic row uh, every um, <laughs> winter. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the the bucket and chuck it, doing it, you know, yeah. having to, there, there's uh, there's no privacy <laughs> no. <laughs> at all. <laughs> but one of the other no, things, so definitely. on that note, I mean, I could see, you can see very clearly at the end of the thing, you know, it took you what two and a half months longer to do it because of various setbacks and weather and so on. But nine months in that tiny boat. I mean, I read somewhere that you and you don't necessarily see it so much in the film, but there's there's a few times where you all had to be all four of you in that tiny cabin. Yes. Yeah. How on earth? Like, how do you not go completely mental? (laughs) Well, I think it's funny, isn't it? It it is about perspective in a sense, like in the reality of it. Plus, you haven't got any choice. Don't mm. give yourself a choice and you've just got to kind of crack on. <laughs> um, I mean, if we had, that was one of my biggest things, is if we had a support boat, which we, you know, we didn't, it was an unsupported row. But if we had a support boat next to you, as soon as things got a little bit difficult, you would be having a choice to step off and mm. get onto something a bit more comfortable. So when you don't have a choice, then it suddenly means, well, the only other option is you know, you're going to be going for a swim. So um, that in those sort of seas is not is not really an option. So you you just end up cracking on with it. And I think the other bit is, you, you know, once you've made that and you've accepted the decision that you make or, you know, that that's the environment that you're going to be in, suddenly that becomes home. Mm. Like, and, and it just is what it, it is what it is. And, and interestingly enough, I read, um, I read the book Unbroken when I was out there. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've seen that film. It's now a blockbuster film. Angelina Jolie, I think, kind of uh, directed it or something. But it was mm-hmm. a true story that was about an Olympic athlete called Louis Zamperini years ago. Mm-hmm. And then he goes into um, he he goes into the military and he's involved in Pearl Harbor, sort of that time of oh, year. Yeah. He's an Amer- American athlete or American individual. And then during that time, they sort of he he goes through loads of stuff, but then unfortunately their plane crashes into exactly where we were rowing it was in the pacific and three of them survive and then they're they're basically lost at sea but in a in a small raft Mm -hmm. and you kind of i was reading this when we were out there and i'm like well 
actually suddenly our boat became like a palace, you know, like they, yeah. they lasted whatever it was, 60 odd days out, out at sea. Um, they were in exactly the same environment. So the, the bonus of the, the ocean is that it doesn't age. You know, I kind of was yeah. really brought home to when I was reading it that I was like, oh my God, this is exactly what they would be looking at. And yeah. these are the conditions they would see. This is the wildlife they would see because this doesn't change. You know, it's not like going back to Pearl Harbor now or sort of landmass where mm. things have, they just look and feel different. So that, I don't know why that really sort of connected with me. And then, um, and also, and I was just like, well, yeah, they, they lasted for X amount of days in an open raft with no food, trying to collect rainwater to drink uh, and, and sort of the odd fish. And that was, that was it. Whereas here we are in like a cabin that's covered. We've got a water maker that we can make sort of desalinated water out of um, to drink and to wash and and we've got freeze-dried food. So suddenly our environment mm. gave me a completely different lens and perspective. Um, and that's something that I've sort of learned and held true to is when things are a little bit difficult in life and things, you, you just try and see it from alternative perspectives. Mm. And I guess having been surrounded by working in the environment, being a physio, being surrounded by people that have overcome significant adversity, there's always there's always somebody or something that's worse off that gives you a different perspective mm. to sort of mean that, you know what, it's it's not as difficult as my head is telling me right now. And something that kind of resonated me with that when I worked with Paralympics is the military guys would always they've always got a great way of having a bit of dark humor around things. <laughs> and um, and they would sort of say, you know, if somebody was a double leg amputee, but somebody comes in and they're a single leg amputee, they just be like, well, it's just a scratch, mate. You know, <laughs> I don't know what you're complaining about. <laughs> you just, you know, you've lost a limb, but you know, it's just a scratch below the knee versus, <laughs> you know, somebody else has got four limbs lost and they'll still yeah. find somebody else that's got, you know, so, perspective I think is so powerful in those in those environments and those those ways to sort of help us to deal with day-to-day -day life in whatever context we're in. Yeah I remember when I was about 15 I think and I went to do my um, work experience I went to do it with the police Strathclyde police oh, cool. as it was in those days and it was not long after Lockerbie had happened. Oh wow. And they basically told me that. And as a 15-year-old, I was quite shocked. But they had all been bussed down to Lockerbie and were picking up, you know, things that people should never have to, to ever have to do, body parts and horrendous stuff. And they basically just said they just they just made black jokes about it because it just is the it's the good way to to cope. It's not necessarily the final way to cope with it, but at the time it was, a you know, mm -hmm trying to get through it in that way and as you say put a bit of perspective on things so it was yeah I've I've heard that kind of humor before as a 15 year old I was rather shocked but <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I get it now and um, yeah. what else did you bring home with you uh, other than perspective what else did you you know I hear I talked to a lot of people I spoke to Dee Kafari who is um, oh, around yeah. the world yachtswoman and you know, there's, I think there's a lot of like, don't sweat the small stuff that comes back yeah. from these sorts of positions. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more that there's very much that that sort of, I think out in with the expeditions, it, it takes you more towards survival, like, you know, our fundamental basics of survival, what's the, it just highlights what's the most important things, like really core cool. Mm. cool things so then when you come back to normal life suddenly just the little gripes the little things that you can sort of end up moaning about because you, have, you kind of don't have that sort of insight I guess sometimes you know we all do it it's kind mm. of you know it's like when you moan at your husband for leaving like the Lucy up or something stupid like that <laughs> you know it's that sort of thing that those mm. little things can become suddenly a big problem just because we haven't got um, we're not being stressed or challenged in other ways. So, um, and I just find that's what I love about the expedition environment is it just strips you back right back to what's mm. the most important, like from a basics of just having shelter, having warmth, having food, having, you know, drink, like that's, that's all you kind of need and mm. you don't need any of the fancy stuff. Um, you don't need sort of big space. And, and I know sort of we're, we're, we're doing this chat now, 
during sort of COVID times. And it's really interesting to sort of hear and to chat to even like family members, friends of mine that I've seen that have never necessarily had any slight challenge and or haven't tested or challenged themselves that suddenly this has become because it's a, a space of unknown it's totally thrown them like and it's you suddenly see a very different um character in them because it's they're having to deal with the unknown which they're not used to and therefore they're feeling really uncomfortable about it they like to know money's coming in every month it's this amount and then this is kind of what we can do and as soon as something is unknown or is being challenged they they not sure how to deal with it whereas I guess that's where I apply being doing some of the expedition stuff it it helps you to in a way constantly problem solve and go with the flow a little bit and um really highlight actually what's important and it, this is okay it's it's better to to work off a strategy of worst case scenario and and then if it's anything better than that then brilliant that's that's a positive rather than going oh well what if we're not out in you know out of lockdown in in sort of next week and hopefully we'll be in out of lockdown in next week and then Christmas will be okay and this will you know and it's mm. it's always trying to plan for the best rather mm. than actually I suppose I have the opposite I, I plan for the worst and then something better comes along that's that's a, that's a bonus <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> exactly. which sounds really negative but it actually is to yeah help in a positive way if that makes sense no it does make sense because one of the things I have said since all this kicked off um was that sort of about this time last year I had a little bit of a a reset as somebody very kindly called it you know I was not very well and anxiety had taken over and I had to learn fairly quickly uh, once I'd finally reached out for help I learned how to look after myself better mm -hmm. how to put myself first and I'm sure you know that does not mean selfishly no. um and so and how to be grateful for what I do have and and all that sort of thing and so when we suddenly hit lockdown I was so inc incredibly grateful that that had happened to me six months before because I or not even six months three or four months before I just felt more able more capable of going okay Let's just see what's important here. Uh, and it, yeah. it, it was really the first time I was actually grateful for what happened. Yeah, bless you. Which, I mean, it's, it's crazy, isn't it, that it takes, it takes sometimes for us to go to those depths mm. in order to realise that, yeah, that's what we're capable of and actually that things are okay. And, yeah, and you need to put yourself first. But, and that. There, there's something about society in general, whether it's Western culture, I don't know, but just things seem to have been getting on this treadmill of like, we've just got to do more and more and we've got to seem like we're this whole superhuman, mm. like we can keep taking stuff on and and kind of nobody is in, you know, we're all human. Like, mm. so kind of even sort of from a point of view of athletes that I work with, people will see them in the limelight and think that they've got all of their you know eggs in a row ducks yeah. in a basket whatever the word is <laughs> um saying is i'm really bad at those um <laughs> you can see it. they've got their shit together you can basically see that. <laughs> exactly okay it's good i suddenly paused at that point that was exactly what i was going to say um, but yeah so they've they've got their stuff together and it kind of it, but they don't like everybody without a doubt like everybody goes through having to overcome their own pacifics at mm. some stage in time because mm. like you know the more we do the more we think we can do and we can keep and then we start taking on more and more and more to the and that's just not it's not humanly possible unless we start to recognize and it's like the hard thing is you know and also when you're in a work environment the more you do the more the demand is as uh, because mm -hmm. people see that you can cope mm -hmm. with doing more so they add a bit more in a bit more in but unless you're able to recognize your own capabilities and where your line is sometimes you have to cross that line in order to come back to sort of know actually what that threshold is to be able to protect yourself because nobody else technically nobody else is going to do it it's yeah. it's got to come down to you but that's easier said than done when especially in your environment you know when you've got young kids you've got a husband you've got a house you've got work all of those things that just mm. build up and um and yeah for sure it's 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 definitely not easy. And I, I think it's, I, I think it happens more commonly than what people let on. Mm. Um, 
I just don't think necessarily either people are able to reach out, know who to reach out to, or uh, somehow get through it themselves, but are unable to to share it. But I think yeah. it's a it's a lot more common than we than we sort of let on. I know, and it's something. It goes back to something you said earlier, and it's also something Karen Dark said. It's it's just a shame that we have to face adversity or yeah. whatever it might be to make you go, oh yeah, I need help or I can do this or I'm going to, you know, whatever whatever direction you take from that adversity, sometimes mm. it feels it just feels a shame that you have to get there <laughs> first. <laughs> well, that's it. And it's also like, why do we, why do we see that asking for help is, is a failure, mm. is a negative? Like, and I'm, t- I'm saying this and crikey, I, you know, I, I've been the worst at this myself. Like I, it, and people have fed it back to me before just saying, well, if you just asked for help a bit sooner, <laughs> it wouldn't have got this far down the road. And I'm like, but at the time you just think it's okay. It's okay. I'll cope. I'll cope. I'm fine. I'm fine. Mm-hmm. I've got strategies. I've got this, that and the other, but actually, yeah, it's, it's, it's as if we, we, we sort of build up this thing of like, oh, I can't let on that things just aren't quite as comfortable mm-hmm. as, as people want to believe. And, you know, if I, if I announce this now, I'm not, living up to people's expectations or whatever thing it is we all have our different personality and our traits Mm. whether it's worrying about what people think whether it's worrying about other people's expectations of ourselves and of others um there's there's all of those challenges that are constantly going on in our heads the Mm. biggest thing is to recognize it first and foremost and then when you can recognize it then you can start building the steps to know when it's becoming a louder voice than what we want it to be. Exactly. And I'm, I'm, I'm so fascinated by the, the line because there's the line of I need help or, uh, you know, I'm pushing myself to achieve something more, greater, a deeper understanding. And th- th- where is, I asked this, I've asked this of a couple of my guests, where, where do you think that line is of I'm pushing and pushing and pushing and it's good because it's growing me and it's, it's pushing me into being a different person. And like you said, you wanted to understand your athletes better. So you put yourself in the face of adversity. And then when do you listen to your body, to your mind and you go, actually, I have to stop now. I have to. I think that's a great question from the point of view of where do we draw the line? Sometimes it it certainly helps if you've gone past that line because you recognize it, you start to recognize those warning signs, so to speak, um, sooner. And therefore then you, you, you put in actually when you've gone to somewhere that's pretty dark and, and deep and you then learn how to crawl yourself step by step out of that, you you then can reflect and go actually these were some of the warning signs then when if and when that starts to build and happen again you you recognize it very much the feel the the awareness whether it's decision making whether it's kind of just feelings of overwhelmment or whatever it might be that mm-hmm. could be triggers and warning signs you go oh hang on a minute this is starting to feel very much like that episode and therefore I don't want to go down to that depth like I yeah. did before. I can't. So, right, what did I do then to get myself out of it? What can I employ now to sort of slow this pace to sort of just start bringing myself back to being the center and making sure I'm eating well, I'm sleeping well, I'm yeah. hydrating well, I'm exercising, and I'm doing things for me and not for everybody else and therefore draining the battery beyond repair. Um, so I think kind of having gone to that point, that certainly helps. And if it's not having gone to that point, there's definitely just those factors of going actually, you know, how much energy, take it to the point of um, on a physiological level or in a physical level, when we, when we train, uh, you know, when people are training, we talk about recovery being so important. And in an endurance space, often it's the very last thing or it's the thing that people go, I better do a bit of recovery, but it's kind of a bit of an add-on and it's not Mm. really seen as actually what makes the difference. And to me, if, if we could change that on a physical level, if you, if you sort of think, right, well, when we stress the system, like whether that's physical stress, psychological stress, cognitive stress being like workload, whether it's travel, sort of stresses that word stress we always associate to psychology but actually it's a multitude of things that make up 
stress to the system. And Mm. in order for our body to cope with that, we need to give it this period of what I would call adaptation or recovery, which Mm. is where, you know, we want to optimize sleep. We want to allow the body to sort of heal. So we want to give it the right nutrition and all of those things, the building blocks of recovery in order to go, actually, we've just put a lot of stress through the system. We give it this bit of adaptation and recovery period the body's able to then adapt to then be stronger when we come back again and do another block. And if we actually took that physical paradigm and take it into just day-to-day life, again, it's it's recognizing, going, well, actually, you know what? This week I've had to travel for work. I've been here, there, and, you know, and I've come back at sort of nine at night. I've then had to do some work into the evening. I've had to get the kids going, doing X, Y, and Z. I've then gone and done this, this, and this. And suddenly you sort of think, actually, my glass that started at the start of the week, which was full of energy, has pretty much drained. And if mm. I don't, if I don't do these things that give me energy back, then I'm not going to be topping that glass back up and I'm going to yeah. start next week in a deficit again. Yeah. And so the way I guess in my head I picture it, and there's loads of analogies out there, but it is that sort of you know, you can either think of it as a battery or you can think of it as, you know, how much capacity do you have? What's your bandwidth? What's your, you know, how full can your glass be before it either spills or empties out, whichever way you want to look at it that works for your for your headspace. But mm. those, those analogies I think are really useful because it, it's also then you go, right, okay, I recognize that I've not got the same amount of energy now as I did last week or the week before. But then you want to go, right, what does give me energy? Because sometimes there's little things. It doesn't have to be a major. That It can be, I kind of call it like, the, what are those little snippets of joy that you can capture? Mm. And it's like actually just having a cup of tea, <laughs> being yeah. very British One of my favourite things. <laughs> yeah, great. And I'm like, you know, a cup of tea. And even it can just be, it might be a hot drink. But I mean, whether it's in day-to-day life or it's out in the ex- expedition environment, that just making a cup of tea and having a cup of tea for, you know, yeah. sort of that mindfulness moment you can have to the taste, the feel, the cup, the whole, yeah. that you can bring it all alive. But that's where little snippets of joy, mindfulness pieces can be so powerful to just give you a little boost of energy to go, right, okay, I'm good to yeah. go again. And there's all those other psychological tools in your box that we can utilize, which mindfulness is one thing um but mindfulness can be around food it can be around it can be anything it's just Mm. about being in the moment for a split second or 10 minutes or half an hour whatever it might be amazing and so you uh, i love i I think i could probably speak to you all week but (laughs) i love you the little snippets of joy thing that's brilliant because i tend to try and find those as many as i can during the day as you say just oh i'm just gonna have a cup of tea or Mm -hmm. i'm just gonna sit on the sofa and look out the window for 10 minutes just a reset or I'm going to go and stand in the garden or you know lovely just little moments I'm going to keep that and steal it and use it as my own snippets of joy um so you took all of this amazing experience of your own and all the things we've just been talking about and then you embarked on was it equally as uh insane <laughs> uh, supporting Mark Beaumont and his world breaking a uh, world record breaking and I was going to say attempt but his uh, you know to, to cycle around the world in under 80 days because I've been support crew on some fairly major nothing as major as that but some fairly major events hmm. and so many of them I have come home almost more exhausted than the athlete not to say that there's not an entire, as we've just talked about, all the things that one must go through as the athlete and the person enduring it. But to a certain extent, there's a, there's a simple fact of get on your bike and cycle. Whereas what you then did was to support every single thing that allowed him to do that for his unbelievable um, achievement. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, let, let's face it, we both, both know Mark well in the sense <laughs> that he is a phenomenal athlete. Um, at the heart of it so Mm. I mean he he was an absolute dream in that sense to work with because we just got we did get a good rapport from the point of view of Mm. I knew he knew that I would never pull him off the bike um, and vice versa I trusted him to be able to have that 
body literacy that I talk about, who we mm. talked about before, um, to kind of, you know, know where his limits, his red lines are. And so we supported each other a lot in that sense. But with regards to my role in it, yes, for sure. It Was it harder than right? It's just, it's just different. I mm. think kind of, I suppose working in sport, I've usually got like, you know, in, in a leader, I've usually got about 50 plus athletes I'm having to sort of at least oversee. Mm. So suddenly only having one is, is great. Um, but at the same time with that one, you want to optimize everything. So you want to make sure you're keeping your head across all the disciplines that will influence his performance, mm. which is where I've got breadth, but I might not have the depth. So then it was a case of, right, well, how can I bring the best support to him, but it's coming but it's only me there that's on the road. So how do I surround myself with the right team mm. to sort of know if I need, you know, we need to sort of change his nutrition. Actually, I can recognize that, but I don't need to know the deep depth in the science. I can draw on the nutritionist to, to do that. Mm. So that's where the biggest thing to preserve, one, both my energy, but also knowing what I can do well and sort of recognizing what potentially my strengths are is, seeing the breadth of what's needed for an athlete and then going to the right people to to get the depth of expertise so that was one way where I managed myself if that makes sense mm -hmm. to be able to deliver the best that I could for for Mark and then yeah you, you're totally right the sort of the classic is you know he I'd wake him up or his alarm would get up get him up at say 3 30 to get on the bike before four mm. which would mean I'd be up at sort of 10 past three quarter past three getting his breakfast ready getting everything laid out and then same with you know if I could get him sort of getting his head down by 10 o'clock in the evening so that he got a good five five and a half hours sleep ideally mm. then I would still be up till sort of you know quarter to 11 11 o'clock at least um sorting stuff you know mm from that day and and whatever which then meant in order for me to preserve and then of course when he's on the road on in I was in the follow vehicle making his food every for every half an hour or his, mm. his drinks every half an hour and food every 45 that type of thing so in order for me to know like prior to doing the journey it was like right well that's not going to be sustainable for yeah. 80 days so how do I reboot? Um, and little things there was making sure that the daily plan was written out so mm. that anybody could step in, that, that my role wasn't completely, what's the word? You know, it, it kind of somebody else could step in and follow yeah. what he needed. And then secondly to that, it meant I could also then step out and grab a cat nap at, for 30 mm. minutes or whatever in a morning shift to give me that boost. And also to sort of you know, little things again, like the snippets of joy of like just washing my hair every two or three days or something <laughs> would just be like so refreshing, even if it was in the back of a camper van as we're driving along <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, over a bucket. I didn't really care, but those sorts of, like we say, those snippets of joy that you can give yourself to give you that little bit of a boost was mm -hmm. really, really key for sure. Um, and I mean, the interesting thing with the, with the cycle though, versus the row is, the difference is the cognitive impact. You know, sleep deprivation has a significant impact on your decision-making ability. And um, when I did the row, it was fairly to a certain extent, don't get me wrong, There's when things got a bit challenging, you, you needed to be on, on point. But to the majority of it, you know, sleep, eat, row, repeat, and kind of look after the team. Whereas with the cycle, you know, I was needing to be two steps ahead mm. for Mark and and kind of trying to take all the different information in and be a bit of a bubble around him. So yeah. definitely the cognitive challenge was a lot harder, I would say, under sleep depot conditions in particular. Well, yeah, I mean, I've supported my husband to do Ram Race Across America and that was only for six and a half days. So, and I know, and we were a team, we were a massive team for a team of four, a massive support crew for a team of four. And I just that was what I was interested in as well, that the that being two steps ahead and knowing who wants fed what at what time and, I, and, and giving them, as you say, their little snippets of joy. Oh, do you know, I know that that would make them happy if they had yeah. this. That would be a boost if they had that. And, and I uh, that's what I was because to sustain that for 80 days, I know you had a week off in the middle, but I, you know, it's still an incredible effort to to be able to do that. What, because um, I loved all the things 
as you well, we know I was a, a, a following every single day because that because yeah, I was. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I loved when I read the book. I actually left a really long time between the cycle and reading the book because I wanted to remember it and I wanted to read it freshly. But mm-hmm. I loved the stories of things like um, how he he got a pain somewhere so you change something and then something else down the line mm. started and then you suddenly all went oh my god it's because he's got two pairs of shorts on of course that's, that's going to affect this and that and the next thing I mean under sleep de- deprived conditions you know it must be so bonkers to have to think of all of that all the time yeah I mean that that was something it was a, it was a good thankfully that was on the practice run around Britain but um <laughs> there yeah. are a couple of couple of key corkers that happened during that around Britain um which was just an eye-opener to go well one is fundamentally if you if something occurs and you've you know it's about have we changed anything because technically Mm. you kind of go you know he's used to doing this mileage and this volume so and certainly for say for instance what his secondary problem was was his hamstring so he and he's open in the books this isn't anything confidential like that that story is about he yeah he he gets saddle sore significantly so mm-hmm. um and was really struggling with it and therefore wasn't able to get the right position on the bike and so the suggestion had been made for him to to actually try all sorts of other things but to to double up his shorts now the shorts weren't necessarily sort of the the ones he he used weren't necessarily the best made so therefore they had seams in them and doubled over like seams in a crease mm. and so suddenly after he was so much more comfortable getting in a in a better position on the bike that was great and then suddenly yeah he's like oh my, my hamstring is pretty sore and I'm like you know and I couldn't fathom because I was sleep deprived I mean that was it was I was like you don't get hamstring injury on a bike like it's you yeah. know the way he was presenting was as if he had a hamstring tear and I was like how can you get a tear on the you know yeah. it doesn't break suddenly you know anyway so obviously clinically reasoning it as a physio I I was like I, I don't know it just doesn't make sense and then that's when I was like oh heck yeah he's got he's got compression around this mm. tendon he's there's got to be some form of compression then looking at it yeah he had a, a a double seam that was was compressing into right on the uh, right over his his tendon so it's like yeah crap get get your shorts off but you know <laughs> I kind of it didn't even didn't even cross my didn't cross my mind and it yeah. I would have I think it would have earlier if I wasn't sleep deprived if I wasn't trying to look so specifically at the diagnosis of what's going on rather than actually just what's changed you know to cause something um and in those environments I think that's really key because I mean subtle things like if his neck was sore I would you know I'd just put a couple of rises on his front stem and suddenly it would go rather than I mean crikey you could tape you could do all sorts of physio Mm. sort of stuff but you're like well Actually, he just changes position for a bit, get him a bit more comfortable, offload stuff um, yeah. as a quick change. But anyway, well, I think it's absolutely extraordinary that you managed you managed that. For, and I know that he talks about it in the book, and I've spoken to him about it personally about this the the incredibly close relationship that you had. That it, it, you know, because when he got to the point where he just was simply having to just one pedal stroke at a time, you mm. had to do you had to be his thoughts and his you know his everything so absolutely extraordinary achievement from both of you well the whole team obviously what did you learn from both of those experiences in terms of leadership and teamwork yeah I mean it's it's uh on both of those topics uh, yeah uh, a lot of stuff in it something I can I think those areas you continue to learn don't you and, and evolve because whether you're working in a team or whether you're leading a team, both aspects of it come down to development of self-awareness and sort of really mm. recognizing what your triggers are, what your own behaviors are, where do you go to, <clears throat> excuse me, where do you go to when you're in different um, different environments, sleep deprived states, lack of, you know, all of these sorts of things, mm. just to know yourself well. Mm. And the the biggest thing, I suppose, I always always and I most probably still do to a certain point I'm always scared of that failure point I always want to be so-called perfect which doesn't exist you know you strive for excellence being the best version of yourself all of those things um 
So I'm always going to be the most self-critical mm. if something doesn't go so well, but that's also the very time I learn the most and I won't do that mistake again. So it's kind of that self-awareness piece, I think, is an, a, a constant involvement over years and years. And both the row and and the cycle sort of taught me a huge amount of what things are my triggers and how do I keep myself consistent around other people um, without having sort of a bit of an outburst (laughs) or a reactive, you know, reactive response to something. Um, And the the girls on the row massively helped teach me that. And it was, it was part of our values. It was our biggest, biggest driver was that team was pretty much number one on the list. Like how do we stay together as a team? How Mm. do we keep evolving? Um, And in order to do that, you know, the girls didn't like confrontation very much. So I use myself more as the, as the, poking prod because I, I suppose I was used to it in sport that we're very critical in a you know critical feedback loop constantly on a daily basis so I'm used to it whereas the others weren't so used to that type of constant feedback so therefore I would ask them to give it to me so they started mm. getting used to giving something that wasn't just oh everything's great it was more like actually you know if you could do a bit less of this that might help us go this direction or that would help us as a team, how we feel like all of those things, just trying to facilitate that. So um, that the, the road taught me a lot about that and enabled me to sort of also understand what my triggers were and yeah. how to recognize my thoughts, my feelings, and then my outward behavior and control it, yeah. um, which really helped then with Mark because it meant I could just be consistent emotion regardless of what was going on outside in order to lead him, so to speak, or the his performance side of things, mm. I just knew he needed consistency of emotion, so he could have whatever emotion he wanted. I didn't, yeah. I didn't care. Like he was the athlete, he was going through hell at times. So it was like I can cope with that, but I won't absorb it too much. Yeah. It's the absorbing, yeah, yeah, it is. Isn't it? And interestingly, other people in the team did absorb it and then got either angry or upset of his behaviour. I was like. Yeah, but we didn't have time like, to develop that in other people. I thought that was a bit of a given that people would do that, but I hadn't recognised that that was something maybe that I developed over the years of working in performance, I suppose. Yeah. And it's that how do you build that rapport that you build really close trust and belief, but you're still able to protect yourself. You can take yourself. Yeah, you have to hold the space for it. That's it, exactly. And that it's really difficult. And in the work environment, coming out of doing those couple of experts you know there was a physio that I was working with more recently and and because of the youth and not ha- having the experience there's a few times where you know they got caught up so much in an emotional response that an athlete was going through that they too got really emotional mm. which just wasn't actually what that athlete needed you know yeah. they needed some clarity and succinctness and all of that stuff but you suddenly recognize actually this is something that maybe has evolved over time, over different exposure to things. Um, And the other thing is that self-awareness, again, coming into a work in a day-to-day environment, um, I now have recognized, oh, okay, there's some other triggers that I have for something else. And for me, that's uh, a good colleague of mine was able to give me feedback to say, actually, when I think I'm helping somebody, actually, I'm jumping in and taking ownership from them which is not my intention at all. But by doing the stepping in means that they step further away. And actually their perception of it is that I don't trust them. I don't think they can do the job. Mm. Whereas actually my, my thinking is, oh, I need to offload them a bit. They've got too much going on. Okay, fine. I'll do it. And I think I'm helping them out. So it's interestingly to sort of, again, it's constantly evolving. Oh, okay. My, what my intentions are might be one thing, but how it's perceived is something different and therefore clarity in your communication and openness in, in addressing what the feel is when you see something that's different to what you expect. So when I, I can visually see this person stepping back, I'm like, Oh, hang on a minute. Why would they do that when I'm helping them out? And you know, as soon as I was aware of that, I then would ask questions and we suddenly had much more transparent comms and I then was not jumping in to take ownership and started to recognize it more and more, if that makes sense. No, it does absolutely make sense. It certainly makes sense as a mother of two, because, you know, my instinct is to always 
protect and do and fix and solve and it's quite often especially as they grow older to to just go well yeah okay just talk and then you know they either have to make their own mistakes or do you know that so it's I I do get that because that is absolutely a natural tendency of mine and you're right sometimes I'm busy banging on about that I think I'm giving them a great life lesson and then they're you can just see they've gone (laughs) I've totally missed the point mother (laughs) (laughs) oh do you know what that's going to be one of the I think anyway totally hats off to to all mums out there because I know one day (laughs) Hopefully that I'll I'll be in that situation, but I know full well if I think about what I'm like with my athletes and stuff, like, yeah, how to control that natural mothering instinct to want to support, to protect and allow them to learn for themselves. Like that's, yeah, that's a a great lesson to know. So just um, not briefly, because it's not the least important, but exciting new things happening. We've obviously talked about Mark. You are now um, uh, co-hosting some of the podcast with him. It's called Endurance out every Thursday. I've Mm -hmm. listened to a few episodes. Really, really interesting. I love the fact that it's about, uh, you know, the people in the background, as you were saying to you before, the people you needed to surround yourself with and that athletes need to surround themselves with in order to make performance um, more sustainable. So the scientists, the psychologists, mm-hmm. the physios and that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. It's, um, it is a way of just making it accessible, I guess, you know, coming from Olympic environment where we've got individuals and teams that are surrounded by all of these disciplines that really deep dive in in their speciality. So whether that is a physiologist, nutritionist, a performance analyst, a psychologist, you know, all of these expertise are surrounding surrounding people to get the best out of their performance. And my my point is is they that level of depth and detail of the science, the application, the research, the kind of knowing what really impacts performance and in individuals is kept so tight in in elite level like it's around the elite athletes and you're Mm. like well there's you know how do we share some of that information because we could all learn from that I mean I being in that environment there's things then therefore that I naturally will apply to my own training and own sort of self because I've been exposed to it so therefore how how can I utilize that sort of performance knowledge and, and make it more accessible? And that's that's very much what's behind the endurance podcast and the book is that you know, often athletes get talked to, you know, people want to interview and and sort of capture what an athlete's training perspective is or how they've succeeded. And that's great, but that's that's their perspective. They don't actually necessarily know the depth and detail of what's gone in to influence that real depth of performance if that makes sense so Mm -hmm. you know they've executed it they've executed a plan that's been written for them by a physiologist or whoever or they've executed their nutrition plan that works for them but fundamentally we individualize programs around each person we see the person first and then figure out what's the best process and the point with the book and and the podcast is about trying to just expose some of those principles to go actually how do you build again this body literacy how do you learn more and more about yourself what works for you what doesn't how do you bring yourself back to the feel through training and whatever um to see actually what gives you energy back what what works for you basically and then therefore if you're going you know what i think my fueling is is kind of having a bit of a negative impact then giving some signs and uh directions to people that you can then follow that specialize in in endurance nutrition say Mm. for instance so that you can then deep dive yourselves but rather than thinking you need to go and get all those experts around you you might just need to deep dive on one or two of the pillars to start off with um and listen to other podcasts read other books that sort of help so hopefully both with the book and the podcast we're we're just trying to bring in some some wise words some people that i've worked alongside for for my lifetime in sport that I really respect and I know I've got a lot of a lot of depth of expertise to share um and hopefully make that accessible to to all and so yes you mentioned the book the book is also called endurance I would love to have read it um but I tried to buy it but Mark is very kindly sending us a copy and it hasn't arrived yet so um I'm very much looking forward to that I know my husband is as well because he's a big endurance fan 
Lovely. So, Laura, thank you so much for joining me because seriously, I, I have such, I'm so privileged to be able to speak to all these incredible women, yourself included. I, I could seriously keep talking forever, but that's just me, particularly nosy. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for taking time out of your day and for t- giving us the benefit of your experience. It's been really incredible. I love how the things you have learned in your sporting life and your expeditions can be so easily translated into managing real life situations. Oh, thanks, Katie, for having me. And um, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. And as ever, I could talk to you for for hours as well. So, um, so thanks for hosting the podcast. And um, yeah, hope to speak to you again soon. Thanks for joining me. I'll be back next week with another incredible episode of Chatting to a Friend. In the meantime, please give us a follow on Instagram, Chatting to a Friend, for all the latest news. Bye bye.